Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. The presidents of the five Central Asian states were just in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, for the first ever summit with leaders of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Central Asia's relations with Arab countries have been warm since the five Central Asian states became independent in 1991. But after Russia launched its full-scale war in Ukraine in late February 2022, there's been a noticeable increase in communications between the two regions. The Jeddah summit symbolically demonstrated the new level of cooperation between Central Asia and the Arab states. What does this cooperation look like between the two regions, and what is, what is involved in it? To discuss all this, I am joined by Ijan Sharshenova, Research Fellow at the Bishkek-based Crossroads Central Asia Think Tank, and Ted Karasik, Fellow for Russia and Middle East Studies at Jamestown Foundation. And thank you both for joining me. Uh, Ijan, I'd like to start with you. Um, what, what does the summit in Jeddah tell us about Central Asia's relations with the Arab countries? Great, thank you, and hello. I believe it's actually a great step uh, for the Central Asian countries because, as you know, we're often seen as a backyard of China or backyard of Russia. And all of a sudden, we seem to have gotten a lot of attention. I mean, obviously, because of the ongoing Russian invasion in Ukraine. But nevertheless, it seems that Central Asian countries are becoming independent uh, foreign policy actors, or at least have seemed like this. And the uh, horizons are really expanding. Obviously, we have had relations with all these countries before. Uh, first of all, bilateral diplomatic relations have been established in the 90s, but nevertheless, we're also part of the Organization for Islamic Cooperation. And the GCC summit, I think it's uh, another step. It's an upgrade of bilateral and multilateral relations and probably an upgrade of the GCC countries' role in the region as well, because obviously they have been contributing as development providers and there were quite a lot of side meetings uh, between the Central Asian presidents and the leaders of the GCC countries, as well as the Islamic Development Bank. So I believe it's a, it's a step in the right direction for all parties involved, and it's a sign that Central Asia is really expanding its opportunities. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, Ted, you've been following the Arab world for a very, very long time. When, the, when the, uh, these Arab states, the ones in the Gulf Cooperation Council, when they look at Central Asia, what's the attraction for them? The attraction by the Gulf states towards Central Asia is in terms of investment strategies and be able to actually uh, work with these countries in order to form a more unified linkage between Central Asia and the Gulf based simply on geography. Uh, this has been an ongoing process for the last couple decades, but has really taken off in the last five or so years and has been affected, of course, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, to me, the meeting in Jeddah was a culmination of this very lengthy process that the Gulf has been pushing in Central Asia over the years. And the Central Asian leaders have been slowly coming together to do this meeting in Jeddah. So this is a culmination point, and now we will likely see greater interaction between the North and the South of this particular geographical slice. Okay, and I got a question that I'm going to ask both of you, but I'll start with you, Ted. What is the basis for this cooperation? I mean, what are the two sides really looking for from each other? Go ahead, Ted. 
the two sides are looking for opportunities in which to recover from the pandemic, which is a major driver of Gulf policy uh, right now. And uh, they're seeking in Central Asia to uh, begin uh, greater investment in advanced technologies and agriculture and solar and so on, at the same time that they're working on investment in oil extraction and gas, etc. There are also transportation corridors that are being discussed, especially at the summit itself in Jeddah, uh, involving uh, Omani plans for uh, some rail routes. And all of this is about uh, the interconnectivity. And I think that's what both sides are really looking for. Central Asia is looking for uh, routes out, if you will, for exports, whether it's going towards the west, to the east, or to the south. And the Gulf states are looking at Central Asia as an area that they can further grow their investment strategies because they're investing in every continent right now uh, around the world. And Central Asia, of course, sits in a prime location uh, between China and uh, really the Caucasus and so on. And that to them is a strategic space. Thank you. Uh, Ajahn, what, what do you see as the basis of the, new cooper- of the cooperation between the Central Asian states and, and Arab countries? I would probably agree with Tad. I think it's uh, very much uh, to the point that for both regions, it's exploration of what's out there, what's available, it's diversification of their international relations, as well as diversification of their investment opportunities for GCC, obviously. But if you look at the statement that has been signed in Jeddah, it actually highlights some of the uh, key points or key cooperation areas such as economic cooperation, strategic and political dialogue, multilateral security cooperation, working on renewables, working on climate change, and even I think there was something about environment and sustainability, which is really good. Some of it is quite generic, like peaceful coexistence or tolerance, but nevertheless, I think both sides are actually still exploring what the other side has to offer. But for Central Asia, because I come from the region and I usually view things from that region as well, I think for Central Asia, it's diversification of its contacts and it's also diversification of its development partners. I don't want to say donors, but definitely partners. And for the GCC as well, I mean, the countries of the GCC are well beyond survival. I think they are well into the phase where they're trying to help others and the developing development cooperation partners. And for them, Central Asia is actually a really good area to start expanding the development cooperation horizons and exploring what they could do. And they have actually been quite active in the region. You can ask like any person from Central Asia, they probably have heard of hospitals, roads, power stations, uh, and so on and so forth that have been built with the Arab money, so the GCC money. So in a way, I think it's it's a diversification of partners beyond the usual Russia, China, EU, and the U.S. Um, thanks, and, and let me follow up with that. Um, do, do you sense that there's also, uh, that the central Asians are really looking for a new a new finance or financial backer, right? I mean, they, you know, they're all in debt to China to, to various degrees. Russia has been a leading trade partner for a long time for Central Asia, but now there's a lot of questions about Russia's future and whether it can still play that role. Are, are, do you see the central Asians 
looking at, at some of these Arab states as possibly the new uh, banker, not not entirely on the level of China, but something in that role. I think so, yeah. But I mean, like, who is not in debt to China? Like, the whole world is in debt to China, including the U.S. But obviously, the GCC is quite an attractive development partner because GCC does not, I mean, attractive to the Central Asian regimes, political regimes, uh, ruling elites, because GCC does not usually attach normative conditions to the development assistance they provide. They belong to so-called non-conventional development providers without who offer the help without too many strings attached. And I think that's a, a bit of a change, a positive change for the regimes, not maybe not for the people, but definitely for the regimes, because the usual partners such as the US and the EU, uh, the development assistance they offer usually comes with strings to touch, uh, such as accountability, transparency, human rights dialogue, political dialogue, and so on and so forth. This is not something Central Asian leaders value probably in their relationship with the rest of the world. So in a way, um, I think GCC is uh, quite convenient for the political regimes or the ruling elites in Central Asian countries. Okay, thanks. Um, Ted, I want to ask you about some specific in, uh, investments and projects that the, some of these Arab countries have uh, done in Central Asia. And I want to start with renewables. And you'd mentioned that, right? That, uh, you know, when you think about the list of potential people to, to help develop renewables in Central Asia, um, you know, the Arab states probably wouldn't come to mind. And yet Saudi company Aqua and, and UAE company uh, Mazda are like are huge in some of these Central Asian countries. Can you talk about their role in other companies that do that? Yes, I can. I just want to back up just for a second to make a very important point. And it regards the fact that when uh, the Central Asian states gained their independence, one of the first tendencies back then was uh, amongst uh, having discussions was that they wanted to imitate the Gulf states. And this has been a driver of their leadership over time uh, because there are very similar behavioral patterns between Central Asian leadership and uh, and Gulf leaders. And there's been this uh, back and forth that's been ongoing for, as I said, you know, ever since 1991. Now we're getting into some very interesting territory because of the nexus between the new regions. And Mazdar and ACWA are making huge investments in Central Asia as a part of uh, their entrance into the region within mind having the COP process as well as the necessity for energy transition. So the Gulf states have an investment uh, strategy that looks at helping Central Asian states out in this arena. Uh, other companies, such as the sovereign wealth funds of these states, uh, particularly in UAE or in Saudi, or even perhaps we'll see some activity with Bahrain soon, uh, that they are increasingly investing in other projects that involve infrastructure. Uh, there's a particularly interesting projects that are being developed by AD ports, Abu Dhabi ports. And uh, this uh, port project for Kazakhstan is not actually for port. It's about the transport of 
energy products from Kazakhstan through the Caspian and then through the Caucasus into the Black Sea. Uh, and this plan by Abu Dhabi ports is part of an infrastructure plan uh, in order to help Kazakhstan get its energy product to market. It's interesting to note that DP World, uh, the port operator, runs the port at Aktu. So you have both Abu Dhabi and Dubai involved in Kazakhstan with energy and shipping and logistics. That's a very good example of this type of activity. Okay. And I also want to um, talk a little bit about weapons. Uh, some of these Arab countries are, are increasingly becoming weapons suppliers to Central Asia. Is this, is this true? Yes, it is true. And um, it's been a tendency for the Gulf states to work with the leaderships and help them to build up their presidential guard. Uh, we've seen that in Turkmenistan, for example. And there's also a tendency now, of course, to have Turkey come in and to be able to help supplement some of the arms uh, sales that are going to uh, Central Asian states now because there's a revolution in military affairs with drones. So this is now the big market. So really the arms sales that are coming from the Gulf are dedicated to leadership protection. And now with the, with the advent of the drone, which is ubiquitous, all these states want to be want to have access to that purchase market. Uh, okay, thank you. Um, and Ajahn, uh, we're, we're hopefully we're going to continue this uh, this topic into the second part of the show too, but I'm curious about relations between, the, or at least the way the Central Asian governments look at relations b- with the Arab states, because it's been kind of a double-edged sword. Um, you know, when I was in Central Asia in 1992 and 1993, there was a lot of, a lot of missionaries, I suppose you would call them, proselytizers, um, you know, seeking out new converts, uh, or at least to get Muslims into their sect in, in you know, wherever Arab country they were coming from. So I would run into Saudis, all kinds of people all the time. The Central Asian governments tended to look at that very suspiciously. Uh, and even to this day, it's very difficult for someone who wants to study religion, Islam, to study in an Arab country, right? And you, they won't, in a lot of countries, they won't let these people become mullahs or, or muftis or anything if they studied that. So, you know, what about the religious aspect of this? I mean, they're, they're all Muslim peoples, and yet the Central Asian governments seem to view, to you know, interaction with religions in the Arab world with great skepticism. I think, yeah, that's probably was uh, the concern in the early 90s. But since then, I think some change, things have changed. And also it varies from country to country. So obviously, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan are probably a bit harsher in terms of religious, uh, the freedom of religion and freedom of belief. The other countries are probably a bit more relaxed. But nevertheless, this is happening. Like still, the education is still there. But I think the governments of Central Asia probably understand that whatever religious education is going to happen within the countries, it needs to be sort of controlled or should happen openly in a transparent way with the participation of the state because it is a, a national security interest. And I believe that the GCC countries, at least the official line, sort of matches with that desire to keep it under certain control. And most of these missionaries, even though there are 
approved ties to certain governments in the Middle East, I think it's quite difficult to say that they have been sponsoring more of the extremist or fundamentalist uh, strains of Islam in the region and around the world as well. So it's quite difficult to say anything without any backup, so to say. To be honest, Kyrgyzstan is quite is getting quite relaxed, and I think it's been quite relaxed about it for a while. Um, the uh, the religion is definitely playing a bigger role than it did in the early 90s. Uh, people have access to the information. Uh, there are more sort of ways to practice Islam in the country as well. I think same happens to Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan are often very similar in this regard. Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, probably similar in a way that is still controlled by the state. Turkmenistan, honestly, is like a black hole still. We don't get too much information from there. It's like reliable, verified information. So I honestly don't know how things are with religion and religious education in Turkmenistan. But nevertheless, uh, having lived in the Middle East for about four years, I actually have not seen too many or have not heard of Central Asians coming to study to the region. I think they still prefer to go to either Turkey or Egypt uh, because one of the biggest religious institutions in the world is in Egypt, Al-Azhar University, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, And we're talking about uh, relations between Central Asia and the Arab states. And my guests are Ted Karasik, a fellow for Russian and Middle East Studies at the Jamestown Foundation, and Ijan Shashenova, research fellow at the Bishkek-based Crossroads Central Asia Think Tank. Um, Ted, I'd like to get your thoughts on on the religious connection between the the two regions also. It's Um, a fantastic question, and um, my colleague actually described it quite well, but I want to add a few more points here. And that is, for example, at the Jeddah summit, uh, both the presidents of Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan uh, went on Umrah. And that was quite significant, I think, uh, for you know them personally, but also from the optics of that, of those visits. And uh, this is uh, uh, in a pattern with Central Asian leaders who more frequently go on Umrah to Saudi uh, as part of their devotion to God and country, if you will. Now, having said that, uh, the Gulf states have typically used soft power programs in Central Asia uh, to uh, do religious styled work, if you will. Now, a dozen years ago, of course, this was not appreciated by the Central Asian states because Saudi was uh, pontificating Wahhabist thought. But Saudi's gone through a complete 180-degree turn in this religious discourse and now uses uh, outreach programs through, let's say, the Muslim World League or something or similar organization to do more soft power meetings and discussions about the role of Islam in society. Uh, The Emirates do the same. And I believe also Kuwait is uh, launching a program as well. Bahrain is another country that's very important in terms of this religious education. They're very quiet, but they do have a big print. Having said all that, it's absolutely correct that uh, you do not find Central Asians too much in, let's say, religious studies in the Gulf itself. 
but you're finding them going to other locations like Egypt, which is more traditional. Um, and I think that there's an increasingly conserv- uh, increasing conservatism, if you will, in terms of Islam that is coming up in the Gulf amongst youth, which is very interesting. And from the comments from my colleague, it sounds like, you know, there's kind of a revival of Islam amongst youth, but for family and life. And that's where the nexus between the Gulf and and the Central Asian states lie is in uh, everyday life and how to uh, live the life of a Muslim in Central Asia while being integrated into uh, Gulf soft power programs. Um, then let me follow up with that. Um, do you see Islam, the difference, different practices of Islam in Central Asia and the Arab states as being an obstacle to, in some ways, to relations between the two regions? And, and if so, is it one that can that is uh, surmountable? In terms of the schools of thought, I think this has been a little bit erased, if you will, and there's a reset going on. The sectarianism that we were seeing, for example, in the Gulf region uh, has simply uh, disappeared. We're in a whole new uh, strategic uh, ballgame now. And when you look at Central Asia and its interconnectivity with the Gulf on this issue, there is this big change uh, where you do not see a discussion of different schools of thought. Uh, It's just basically about Islam. But these uh, tendencies tend to have an evolution of of being one way and then they come down again in kind of a a pattern. And so we're going to have to wait and see what happens. This could be a five or six year phenomena that we're looking at, or it could be longer or shorter. We're just going to have to monitor the way that Islam and the schools of thought are being discussed by locals in their primary language. Uh, thank you. And I, John, the uh, same question to you, too, because I know uh, in a lot of cases, Central Asian leaders and, and leading clerics in Central Asia, too, have, have criticized some of the behavior of, of worshipers because they, they said, uh, you know, this, the, that is an Arab custom. It's, it's not our custom. We have our own traditions. Uh, do you see that as being a problem going forward in relations? I think we need to differentiate between the narratives that are practiced by the leaders of Central Asian countries within the country and outside the country. I don't want to call it hypocrisy, but when it comes to external relations, they usually keep those concerns to themselves uh, and generally seem to be inclined towards an official level collaboration, quite open-minded about what they accept. But then if you look at the, at least like the, the leading denominations of Islam within the countries, it's mostly Sunni. Uh, so there are, I mean, Bahrain is very much almost 50-50. There are no exact statistics on the other countries, but they have quite considerable Shia populations. While in Central Asia, that is not the case. It's a very much Sunni area. The big difference is that we had over 200 years of very strong Russian influence, first at the Russian Empire and then at the Soviet Union. So obviously that has distorted a lot the practices of Islam and the memory of Islam. I think the conversations are still ongoing, but they're very much domestic and they're usually happening within the countries, within the civil society, 
within the academic community as well, what is the practice of Central Asian Islam? How is it different from Arabic Islam, from the Gulf Islam? How is it different from the global Islam? How is it different from the Russian Islam? Because Russia is a multi-confessional state with a big proportion of Muslims as well. So I think the conversations are ongoing and it's a, it's a work in progress and it's a fluid thing, always changing, always dynamically um, shifting. But I don't think it's an impediment to relations with the GCC countries. If nothing else, I think the Central Asian leaders would probably be appealing to the fact that they come from majority Muslim countries and even the fact that the majority of the leaders actually went on Umrah, as uh, Ted noticed. I think that's, that's playing a double role. On one hand, it's uh, a way to probably do something personal for the presidents, but it's also a public statement saying that we show respect to the custodian of the two holy cities and we take the opportunity to confirm again that we are Muslims, so we are sort of one blood or one culture, one we share values. So I think it's not an impediment uh, to the opposite. I think it's actually a way, it's a, it's a point of contact or a platform to connect better, bigger, I know, deeper. Uh, thank you, especially because you've helped me tran- transition into my next point. You know, for more than 30 years, although the Central Asian countries have had, had good ties with the Arab states, like the Arab states, for the most part, were kind of on the margins, right? I mean, the big partners in Central Asia were China and Russia. Now Russia's war in Ukraine has caused a, a, a you know, international affairs realignment across the globe, uh, pretty much. Yes, indeed. Um, we actually had an event uh, in a Bishkek institution, and we had a colleague of ours, Plamen Ponchev, and he made a really good an- an- analogy. So he was describing uh, a theater, and you sort of have like a first row uh, observers or the audience, and then second row and third row. So in the case of Central Asia, the GCC countries were probably sitting on the second or even third row uh, as middle powers, but a bit removed geographically, a bit removed culturally as well, thanks to the Russian influence and, I mean, centuries of being pretty much apart intellectually and physically as well. But they are paying more attention now. And if before it was a bit of a struggle for them to understand even where we come from, I think nowadays they have a better understanding of the region. And what I also have noticed in the last five, six years as well is that the governments of GCC countries are encouraging tourism to the former Soviet Union countries. And that was quite a surprise for me, at least, because I was really wondering why. For example, I lived in Bahrain for about four years. It was quite, I mean, it is as normal for them to go to Georgia, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, as it is for Central Asians to go to Turkey, Dubai, Thailand, and Egypt, for example. So it's become a destination for travel, a destination for exploration. They are a bit more interested about our culture. When the expos and other kinds of uh, exhibitions happen in GCC countries, they do show interest both at the state level and the public level as well. They're curious about the region because for them it's still an unknown land. But they find it fascinating that it's populated by Muslims they have not heard before, because obviously for the most of the 20th century, we lived in the shadow of the Soviet Union and probably were not seen from outside. So in a way, they are discovering us. 30 years later, they are discovering us and establishing those connections. And we'll see how it goes. I mean, that will be very interesting to see what sort of stereotypes they 
develop of us or what sort of perceptions we create in the region. But there are certainly there is certainly more cooperation now, both at the state level and at the public level, people to people level. I would like to add here that it's important to understand that the Gulf leaderships, particularly, let's say, uh, with the UAE and with Oman, were very early involved in Central Asia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they had a lot of uh, investment plans that fell by the wayside because of other events that were going on at the time. Having said that, uh, the UAE, particularly its leadership, began to establish uh, their hunting grounds that were formerly in Pakistan at the time, in southern Kazakhstan, and in Turkmenistan. And this is actually a, a tool that the Emiratis use in order to get close to the leaderships as this hunting uh, phenomena. And so the Emiratis have set up a hunting area around Shimkent, and you'll see them. uh, They also have a a falcon rehabilitation uh, center there too. So they kind of combine their hunting and falconry habits, but they've transferred them to Central Asia where that helps garner closeness with the leadership at the local level, but also at the, at the most senior levels of government. That phenomena uh, helps to build these relations on an interpersonal level and then helps to guide their investment later. In addition to that, uh, the Central Asian states, I think for the Gulf, uh, represent an area that they have been, they, the, the Gulf states have been looking at for decades. They understand Central Asia pretty well. They study it, uh, in leadership, uh, and in their, uh, and in the government. And so they have a pretty good understanding of Central Asian states and various areas or parts of some of these countries where they want to invest. And that you know, can look at uh, gold, it can look at uh, other minerals and so on from earth sciences that are part of Gulf economic desire to have greater influence and to uh, bring uh, strategic minerals to market. The question here becomes, how is this fit into Chinese plans? Because China is there too, and there's sometimes a nexus between the Gulf states and China in the Central Asian states that we're really going to have to watch in the coming years, because China is really pushing westward. And the Gulf states, of course, are all signed up to BRI. So this is something that uh, I think will pull all these countries closer together. And it's all really based early on from this falconry. Oh, thank you. Um, Interesting. And uh, okay, so let me ask uh, one of my last questions, and then I'll give you you guys a chance to make some comments uh, of something I might have missed. But are the Arab states, are any of the Arab states a model? for the Central Asian governments uh, in some way or another. I mean, when they look at that, we've heard 
comments that, that kind of said that, that, you know, when the Central Asian governments were thinking of how to organize their society, how to rule or govern the country, that, that there are some examples that they take from the Arab states. Do you see that as, as some of those states as being a model for governance in Central Asia? Start with you, Ted. No, no, yes, I absolutely see it as a model because of the way that I've been approaching the research and talking to the policymakers and stakeholders over the last few decades that there's definitely a the Central Asians want to imitate, if you will, the Gulf states, and the Gulf states know that. And so it's also important to remember that at the very basic level, uh, these are all big families and tribes and so on that are beginning to interact together more and more frequently. And I think it's important to take an anthropological view of this phenomena in order to better understand what is going on between them. The Central Asian states, there's no doubt that they're copying the uh, Gulf states. And I think a really good example of the interactivity between them is between, let's say, Kazakhstan and UAE, because Kazakhstan has the Astana International Finance Center, which is tied with the finance center in Abu Dhabi and the one in Dubai. So that makes a very interesting triangle of investment opportunity. And by the way, I should point out, I know I've gone from, I'm going from tribe to Bitcoin, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you have Bitcoin and other types of, uh, monetary, uh, uh, tools that are being developed between these two regions, uh, that really changes the shape of commerce and pulls them together. Well, thanks. And, and good going from tribes to Bitcoin. Uh, that's a <laughs> Well done. Um, I John, same question. Do you, when the Central Asian governments look at the Arab states, do they see any, is there something there that they think is, is a model for their own way, style of governing the country? I wouldn't say so. First of all, it's structurally very different societies and very different political regimes. I think the GCC is very different from the rest of the Middle East of, and North Africa as well, due to the petrol wells, extreme petrol wells, which actually allows them to sustain the political systems they have within their countries. In addition to that, it's centuries and centuries of uh, a ruling tribe or ruling elites being in power and the rest of the society agreeing to that, so sort of a, a social contract in a way. Well, we don't have that and we have certainly had a very different 20th century and as much as the uh, tribe and clan politics are attractive, I don't think we have very strong affiliation or very strong identity or tribal identity as uh, probably some people would like us to have, but we really <laughs> don't because it's honestly, I cannot name, like I can name all the tribes I might belong to, but that's a lot of tribes. And if you belong to too many tribes, you don't belong to any really. And I think that's the case with uh, the political leadership as well. What they do or, or where there are some points of contact as well, I think it's the uh, lifestyle. I think that's where there is an aspiration of this luxurious uh, lifestyle that's associated with the Gulf life, uh, Haliji life, not the North African or the rest of MENA, but definitely the Haliji lifestyle is very attractive. The level of services, the level of healthcare, the level especially of private medicine, the level of investment and businesses that are run in the Middle East, the architecture is probably also quite attractive. The fashion that comes from there is quite attractive too. And you need to understand, the, again, the travel 
destinations for some lesions. One of them is Dubai. So a lot of those luxurious lifestyles that come, they usually were seen in Dubai. So it's very Dubai style, not like Bahraini style, not Omani, but very much Dubai. But where the GCC might lead, actually, and surprisingly enough, I think it's actually uh, the clean energy, the transition. Obviously, they are not where they should be, given the wealth and given the issues they face in terms of climate change. But at least there is at least political declaration and commitment and will and sufficient investment into developing uh, green energy, supporting energy efficiency, renewable energy, and so on and so forth. And I think this is something to look up to. Even though they are still on their way, I think it is something that Central Asian countries could learn from. And I think Mazdar has become really um, a miracle in the world of sustainable energy. I mean, I know it comes with its own difficulties when you look deeper or closer into it, but it's just the scale of it, the, the largesse of the project, it's very much attractive. And I think this is something that could be a model for Central Asian governments to learn from. And I think the GCC countries are very keen to, to share their knowledge as well and their achievements that they have got so far, because again, it was mentioned in the joint statement. So obviously they're quite proud of the achievements they have uh, done in this area and they're happy to share it with the rest of the world. And I think Central Asia is a good candidate uh, being that rest of the world. Okay, uh, then my final question, and you can mix this in with any thoughts on, on something I might have missed, but, um, you know, it, we're, we're talking about Arab-Central Asian relations and how they're going now. Now, the, the relations between these two regions date back millennia, really, right? And certainly in Islamic history, a city like Bukhara, for instance, is greatly revered, right? So even if you're in the Arab world, you know about the, these places. Was Is this summit that they had yesterday in Jeddah, can we look at that as something of a watershed moment that's like the reconnection of Central Asia to the Arab states? I mean, are we moving toward closer relations in the near-term and mid-term future? Um, and uh, Ted, I guess I'll start with you, and I'll let Ajan have the last word then. Thank you very much. Um, I feel that uh, there is a, a very strong connection, obviously, between Central Asia and the Gulf states. I will push hard back on this tribal issue because it's really important to map out the anthropology of these uh, groups that run from Central Asia all the way through the core of the Middle East into the Horn of Africa. This type of research reveals some very interesting patterns that I think that policymakers and stakeholders really need to understand better uh, before they begin to uh, try to like do various programs uh, for, let's say, democracy building and stuff like that, uh, because the Gulf states have a different view. Now, having said that, there is a long history, of course, with Bukhara and Samarkand, and particularly with a community of uh, Uzbeks that live in Jeddah, for example, for the past couple hundred years. Uh, so you have a diaspora, if you will, from Central Asia that reside in, in Saudi. This is really important because it helps to pull the entire uh, two regions together over time. And indeed, Bruce, I would agree with you that this was a turning point. It's a culmination of a process that's been going on for several decades, and it is a turning point. And I think it's only for the best for both regions that this summit occurred. So I think it's very positive uh, news. 
Okay, great. And then, Aishan, uh, on to you. You know, like I said, the, the, the relationship between these two regions was disrupted by um, Russian colon- uh, colonization. Are, are we now back on track and headed forward again? I think so, but it's also a renewed, transformed relationship because obviously uh, the Arabs many centuries ago have brought Islam with them, but Islam was different, the Arabs were different. People who who lived in Central Asia were quite different. So in a way, it's a rediscovery of each other, a reconnection as well. And it's been happening for a while, but it was a trickle that is becoming a stream now. Because obviously we had the development assistance, we had tourism going both ways, but more so towards the GCC rather than the other way around. And generally, I think it's a new step uh, or an upgrade in relations. And this is something to welcome for both countries. And also something that we probably forgot to mention is also labor migration, because we have Uzbekistan, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan being exporters of uh, labor force around the world, well, as you might know, it's mostly to Russia. But nevertheless, with the situation in Russia, there is a need, a long actually awaiting need for, to diversify the destination for employment for our citizens. And I think the Gulf is one of those attractive regions because obviously they have the money, they need the people to do the work. And in terms of lifestyle as well, it's probably more attractive. And in terms of practicing Islam too, uh, it might be a bit easier for Muslims from South Asia to go and work in, some, in the GCC countries. And that's been the case. So in a way, this is following, like the summit itself is following on the people-to-people relations. Because the UAE, I don't have the numbers, but it does host quite considerable amount of contemporary Central Asians. Not those who live there for 200 years, but those who have arrived in the last 10-15 years. Uh, in search of employment and new opportunities, and especially in the service sector. And hopefully that would develop too, because obviously our countries are still growing. Central Asia is a very young region, uh, and we need we need jobs for our people. And GCC might offer those jobs for our people. And that's beneficial for our societies as well. Again, like if you come to Bishkek, you go to coffee shops, a lot of them resemble a lot of what I have seen in the Middle East uh, in a good way in terms of services, convenience, and so on and so forth. So indeed, I think it's a, it's a good development, and I'm looking forward to see what happens. My only concern is the authoritarian know-how, because unfortunately authoritarian regimes learn from each other, and obviously none of these regions are particularly democratic. But then again, if they find a way to develop a genuinely uh, GCC mode of governance and genuinely Central Asian mode of governance, then serves both people and the authorities, that would be great. Okay, thank you. And that's a good note to leave off on. Um, you know, obviously this relationship is going to continue and, and, and I would predict that it's going to expand. Um, so I'll be glad to have you both on the show again to uh, kind of bring us up to date sometime in the near future. But for now, I thank you very much, Ajahn and Ted, for being on the program. And a big thanks as always to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medley's podcast producer in Washington, D.C., and a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolis podcast or the Central Asia Unfocused newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.